So what were you saying about Grant? No, I was just saying. You know, we were talking about how much uh, how cool Grant has been, and he's his uh, big three clips are getting better. I'm like, I wonder what Grant like what if he's like a big guy, a little guy. Like when I first <laughs> he's met, probably an average size guy. I th- I don't know. Like, I mean, do you think he's like a very little guy? I, like when I first like, met D- Dopey Dave, I had always pictured him as like a little nebbishy guy. Right. Like you know, five, he's tall, four. isn't he? He's like six feet tall. Yeah. And uh, when I met him, I was like, Whoa. and he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I-, I just didn't expect you to be so tall, you know? Because everybody says that, you huh. know? But like, maybe Grant is like six five, four hundred pounds. Like, I'm not sure. Wait, you see him every Sunday, though. Yeah. Most you just, Sundays. You get the head. Yeah, he does. Like, and he looks regular but size. But I would imagine that his, but, his face and his head are proportionate to the rest of his body, don't you think? Well, I don't know. You know, anything's possible. <laughs> I mean, I mean, let's, Okay. Next Sunday, let's ask him to stand up and turn around. Yeah, I want his, I want his measurements. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, really excited. Right. Um, what am I supposed to do now? Now we start the show. Okay, you sure? Well, <laughs> it's either that or we just you feeling sit okay? here for a while. No, let's not do that. I'm resetting. Why are you making dead air? Uh, okay. <laughs> do the thing. Here we go. Here we go. You ready? Do the thing. And we're back. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X. And I'm Mike R. Boy, do we have a show for you. Today on RMA, the boys return after a long and harrowing dark week with plenty of action and excitement to catch up on. And we discuss the tragic passing of author and recovery advocate David Poses' book, uh, The Weight (laughs) of Air. And Did, Did Poses' book pass away? No, did I, I worded that very quickly. And you shouldn't be laughing about this. How dare you? Um, I know my, uh, my sentence structure. This is, is a comedy show. It is, but uh, not funny, but still we're going to discuss his Plus, book. it's not funny. Not That's funny. the other thing. It's not you funny. you got to deliver it with a somber tone. It's not, yeah. All right, sorry. Advocate I, David. I, I interrupt because I care. And we examine how we treat depression after sobriety. Ha-ha. <laughs> not funny either. <laughs> and what else? We've got another big episode of the big three with SLP with G Money Smooth, aka Grant Boykin, the editor at large of the RMA Newsroom. Mm-hmm. All this and more today on a very special edition of RMA. Hey, hello. Hey, wow. Hey, a little rusty. Great to see you. Um, it has been a while. It's been two weeks. It's good to see you. Yes, same I, here. Um, lots happened. Lots happened. I don't remember half of it, but I've written down the other half. But so. first, if you want to support. Your local neighborhood podcast. We are a listener-supported podcast. Is that like PBS? Yeah, I'm trying to like- make it sound like NPR. We're, <laughs> we're a listener-supported podcast. Not the Helena Rubenstein Foundation, right? right? So uh, so if you want to help us succeed and keep the lights on here, why don't you join our Patreon? What is a Patreon, you might ask? It is a members-only subscription service featuring uh, private messages, chat, video meeting, some extras. You get pictures of Nat and I in various stages of undress. Uh, mugs. The mugs are about you to You just ship. made like a I'm drinking I, beer motion well, It's to a mug. Face. I'm trying to make a mug. Um, we got exclusive mugs that are shipping after three mugs. months. The best thing about it, though, is that you get access. You get the secret codes to access 
the uh, the Discord server. That's turning out to be the star of the show. Now, the video episodes have been really great. We have When we do them. We, well, the idea is every <clears throat> other week. We've basically been able to do it, but as things settle down, we're going to do more. It's, yeah. it's going to be fun. But yeah, the Discord is awesome. Yeah, after three months of continual uh, paying for Discord, um, Discord paying for Patreon, they'll send you some merchandise. Yeah, it's a mug. Yeah, well, Friar Tuck level and Golden right. Circle get a cool mug designed by who? My son. Oh, and uh, the the lowest level, the supporter level, uh, gets a sticker with a you know, it's very cool. So, well, if you want to support uh, the show, head over to patreon.com slash recovery in the Middle Ages to learn more. And to sign up. Yeah, and come say hello. Also, the private Facebook group we're on there, I don't think I guess we're not up to that. I'm sorry, I have a really bad cold. So uh, go to patreon.com slash recovering the Middle Ages to learn more. And one more thing I wanted to say. Welcome to all the monsters listening stateside, around the world, down the street, across the table, and right next door. Welcome all. Settle in, buckle up, and get ready for excitement, comedy, tragedy, intrigue, mystery, and so much more. Where can they find us, Mike? Well, if they're listening to us, yeah. they know where to find us. I wonder why we ask that question if they're already listening. But, uh, maybe they want to go to our website. At middleagesrecovery.com. Right, or some other I still have a box full of t-shirts. Just buy some t-shirts, people. Yeah, or stickers. Stickers are cheap. They're five bucks. They're Just great. go buy them. Yeah. Yeah. We should give them away or something for you. We should. I've been... Buy them. Yeah. You know. Okay. Also, um, we also have weekly RMA recovery meeting, Wednesdays, 1130 a.m., uh, Wednesdays, not Wednesdays, Sunday, the other Sunday. day, the other Wednesday is Sunday. Um, Wednesday is Sunday at RMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, come and uh, participate in our really low key, chill um, recovery meeting. Uh, everyone is welcome, whether you are a Patreon member or not. Yeah, yeah, this um, is for all the monsters. Yeah, just come on. Um, if you join our Facebook group, uh, which you can find by searching uh, Recovery in the Middle Ages on the public Facebook page, uh, we'll get you in the group and then we'll give you the secret codes to access the meeting. Uh, and you can join us and uh, say hi and tell us a bit about yourself. It's uh, it's not like we don't we don't hold hands because we're all on Zoom. We don't uh, pray together, but, you know, we just uh, it's do some light sharing. Usually uh, Grant or uh, or Aaron comes up with a topic. You know, we people share and expound on the topic yeah. and so on. And we, we have some based. regulars there. And then there's people that come like once and I never see them again. <laughs> and then there's people that come and stick around. It's yeah, a, me and Mike show up and it, we yeah. love it. It's never more than, it hasn't been more than like, 12 people. Yeah. Probably. About, so it's, it's a good size. It's pretty intimate. And we are working on uh, new times because it's gotten increasingly difficult for some of us to get there on the Sunday afternoon. Um, but I got to have my RMA recovery meeting. So I'm uh, angling for maybe like a Wednesday night. Yeah, we can try and try and find another day. Uh, I, we haven't gotten any reviews recently, have we? I, I, I didn't see I didn't, one. We got ratings. Like we're up to 111 ratings. Wow. Which is... That's pretty good. Yeah, it's amazing. But yeah. um, people writing reviews is... Uh, we just that last one. So please write us a review if you can. Yeah. Uh, tell us your story. Tell us your story by logging on to middleagesrecovery.com. Scroll down and fill out a your story form, and you could hear your story read. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I have a cold. I know. I'm very sick. Or you can call the RMA hotline at 516-888-6297. Leave us a message. Keep it from three to five minutes, because otherwise you get cut off and you have to call get called back. Uh, tell us your story, say hello, or even tell us how much the show means to you. And if it's good, we may play it on the air. 
I mean, we'll play it if it's we'll not play good. it <laughs> we don't, no really matter care. what. We need uh, we need content here, and uh, we'd love to hear from. Is you that guys. a place that we should go and check in with our buddy Ryan Rhina? Yeah, I was thinking that we actually have a voice memo from uh, one of our favorite monsters, Rhina or Ryan, who uh, went to rehab. If you don't know the story, Ryan from rehab. Uh, we uh, he started listening to the show. He's a young. He's on the younger end of the uh, the middle aged uh, spectrum. And uh, he got inspired to get himself into a rehab, and we were like so happy with uh, with his progress. And um, I've been talking to him, and you should see him. Like his picture, he's got a haircut. Yeah, he's great. You know, he looks all Florida tanned and rested. Yeah, and he sounds know? great. I mean, we had a couple messages from him. One before he got sober, and now some after. And so you can hear the difference. But most importantly, he's healthier than ever. And he sounds great. And so this is his latest update. You may re- remember Ryan from uh, the singing uh, that he did of recovery in the news prior to him entering rehab. Yes. Is, uh, uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure he hates it when I bring that up. Yeah, anyway, that. Uh, this is from uh, about a week or so ago. A little yeah. less. Yeah. Something like that. Here it is. Right. Hey, Mike. Hey, Nat. Hello, RMA Nation. This is Ryan Johnson from Chicago. Um I called last week, but the quality of my voicemail was uh, subpar. So I don't even really remember what I said. It probably wasn't very important anyway. So, you know, I guess this is uh, God's will for me to be calling in this week and leaving a new message or something like that, I guess. Um, the end of my stay in Florida is, is uh, quickly approaching. I have about two weeks left at this treatment facility. And uh, it's weird. I feel like I've lived. 10 lives here. Um, but at the same time, it's gone extremely fast. Uh, it's just, it's, it's kind of a weird dynamic time is a, it's just strange and slow and fast at the same time in places like this. Um, and while everything isn't perfect, I'm certainly in a much better spot than I was when I got down here. And I have to remember that on my really fucked up bad days that I have here. Um, I have to remind myself of the hell that I had put myself through and the pain and misery I've been causing myself for so many years and how truly torturous it was before I came here. And the, the bad days I have here are not really circumstantial. It doesn't necessarily have to do with what's going on here. It's more so just the uh, roller coaster of emotions that I, I, I can't seem to have much control over. Um, mood fluctuations, um, and, and things of that nature. And I'm sure there, there, the schedule here is very repetitive. So I'm sure that that does play into it. As Mike had told me, actually, uh, when we were talking on Facebook, he said something to me that really rang true, uh, that familiarity breeds contempt. And I've been thinking about that a lot. And, uh, hmm. as time comes to an end here and I'm, I'm starting to get really anxious. Um, kind of just irritated but at the same time I, I do remain humble and grateful because I, i'm leaps and bounds better than i was and uh i am going back home soon here and uh starting to work on my aftercare plans you know i'm gonna have to go home and live with mom for a little bit because i have no money but i am just happy that i even have that opportunity because there's certain guys you know here who don't don't have anywhere to go after this with no money so i'm 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 fortunate that i'm in an, in an actual position to uh be in a safe place at no cost for, you know, I'm sure I'm going to have a short leash on me and I, I really don't want to live with my fucking mother anyway. So here, here. I will uh, be working very hard to get out of that, but um, I've learned a lot here, man. I got a long way to go. Um, and, uh, you know, I plan on 
brushing up my uh, toolbox beyond just AA because that's pretty much all it is here. And well, there's some use to that. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, being able to explore um, more and just see what else is out there uh, as I progress on this really, really. Don't. And that was Ryan. I got. He, I have more. Oh, oh, but I wanted to make a comment about him brushing up on his toolbox. Yes, which is always a good. Don't thing brush to up do. too much; you'll go blind. <laughs> um, right, and I, also I'm I'm pleased to hear that my folksy Gen X aphorisms seem to be uh, helping people. Yes, that's great. Of course. Anyway, let's finish. Uh, let's finish this thing. Well, the thing cut him off. Right? Yeah, there you get three minutes. But he that's called it. back. But he called back. Dude, sorry, I guess I got cut off. Uh, I guess I was a little long-winded there, but I, I don't remember really what the fuck I was saying, but, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to get out of here. I'm stoked to see what it, what, what life uh, has to bring me. To be honest with you, man, I'm just kind of tired of being around sweaty, irritable dudes all day, <laughs> me being one of them. So um, I'm looking forward to the other side of this. And, like, you know, I, I don't have much else to say. You guys have been tremendously helpful along this journey and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to call in and you know like I said like, there's a dude here bought an RMA shirt he told his sponsor about it now a sponsor wants an RMA shirt like get the shirt so listen to the fucking podcast yes. too but anyway exactly. much love uh, <laughs> to you guys to uh, to all the monsters out there and uh, y'all mother suckers have a good day yeah. peace out much peace. love all right. All right. I love, love, love it. And, I love uh, hearing from that guy. Ryan, it's been so awesome uh, getting to know you and, and walking you through a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry I haven't been as attentive as I have been. I was talking to Ryan pretty much every day, you know, for a while. And um, and I told him, I like, things just got so nutty in my life. Like, it's to the point where I haven't even had a chance. Like, I don't even have the same time to like look at my Facebook messages when I used to just be sitting in the I store. Know. But um, you said a, a mouthful there, and it takes me back to when I was in that position, thinking about, and the last time I talked to him, I said, you know, how's the aftercare planning going? Because mm. if you've never been to rehab, uh, one of the things they do is before they let you go, you come up with an aftercare plan. Uh, try and make sure you have enough insurance to stick you in a halfway house. Uh, something like that. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it's a good idea. And uh, and so I've been trying to talk to him. I'm, I'm going to talk to him again and really be like, okay, what are we going to do? What is the plan? Because nobody really did that with me. Mm. And when I didn't, you know, that's the most dangerous time uh, is right after you get out. It is. Uh, and I'm, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Because mm-hmm. um, I... You know, the subject of our interview tonight... Um, the author, David Poses? Yes, I'm yep. sorry. Uh, the, the, guy, the guy. The guy whose name I just flew out of my head because I'm on like so many medications right now that I can <laughs> barely think straight. Yes. Um, about statistics about your chances of um, dying when you get out of rehab versus if you don't go to rehab at all versus, you know, it's just some interesting stuff. But uh, we'll, hold, we'll hold that for the main Yeah, so but. hang in there, Ryan. Keep it up. And I'm, I'm going to message you as soon as I uh, get home and just catch up and let you know that you're, you're going to be in the uh, We Got Your Voicemail. And well, we you'll just, be hearing it You'll be hearing it. you're going to listen to it. And we just really want you to do well, and, and we're, we're pulling for you. So thank you for that. We're pulling for you in your toolbox. Yes, pull your toolbox okay. repeatedly. How old are we? Old enough to know better, young enough to pretend. <laughs> How's that one? That's brilliant. And now... Where are we? The Big Three with SLP. 
<laughs> and it's uh, Grant Boykins, uh, SoberLearningsPlaybook.com. This is uh, our monthly segment uh, where he goes over the news stories um, from the month in recovery. And it's called The Big Three because he looks at the big three. The, the, the top, biggest, the top three recovery based stories. on his editorial uh, okay. okay, here we go. Grant with the big three. Hey, everyone. I'm Grant Boykin with Sober Linings Playbook, and this is the big three. The big three is the end of the month segment where Nat and Mike allow me to dig a little bit deeper on the three stories in the world of addiction and recovery things that I've been tracking as I put together the weekly news clips. I look at the big headlines, but also at the interesting stories about innovations in treatment and diverse experiences with addiction and recovery. I try and pick what interests me, obviously, but hopefully it's interesting to you. And if you want more, go to SoberLiningsPlaybook.com, where I post the written version with links to the stories and the resources I mention here. So I have a background in public policy, but mainly in healthcare and retirement security. It wasn't really until I started my own recovery journey that I became interested in addiction. So I'm glad that Mike and Nat have given me this space. So what three topics are on tap for this month? Got a story about fentanyl and another on nicotine and recovery. And I'm also gonna talk about harm reduction in Portland, Oregon. So let's talk about fentanyl first. Everyone knows by now, it's in the headlines all the time, fentanyl's bad, highly powerful opioid. It's made its way into all forms of press pills and powders. Unsuspecting users have it in their drug supply, and it's driving overdose deaths. Experts say it's one of the drivers behind the record increases in overdose deaths that we've had since the pandemic. <clears throat> but one of the things I've been noticing is that the, the fear of fentanyl which is understandable, could be driving us toward more punitive drug policies. Before I go forward with that, let me just give you what I see as the context. I would argue that as we enter the fourth decade of the opioid crisis, we really have sort of the emergence of a new, more sympathetic addiction narrative. Stories about the suburban kid who, because of illness or sports injury, is prescribed Oxycontin, gets hooked, turns to heroin when the pills become inaccessible or too expensive. And as soon as, for better or for worse, when addiction, when opioids are seen as a white problem, we tend to have more sympathy toward the user, view the person as a person in need of help, and our anger tends to turn toward the manufacturer. Um, but that could be changing because fentanyl has sort of changed the game. And in addition to just the overdose deaths caused by fentanyl. I think there's some additional confusion and possibly misinformation out there. And I'll just give you the three examples that I've seen. One is the skin contact myth, police officers touching fentanyl and claiming that they've gotten overdoses. That's been widely debunked. And there was a really good New Republic podcast that I have the links to in my written piece online. Um, but Experts have pointed out, too, that this myth is dangerous because it means bystanders and first responders could be less likely to render aid to overdose victims. Another confusing data point that I've seen is whether or not fentanyl is making it into the marijuana supplies. In September, Forbes had a story that 
really suggested that that was a myth, that it's not happening. But just last week or earlier this month in The Hill, a very reputable publication, there was a story about a Connecticut teen who, it appears, died from an overdose from fentanyl-laced marijuana. So who knows? And then one other story I've read that I don't quite have my hands around yet was in a January article in The Atlantic. There was an expert talking about how some feel that with fentanyl overdoses, a higher dose of Narcan is required to reverse the overdose. But this expert was pointing out that that's dangerous and it can lead uh, to more likely relapse and subsequent overdose. I don't quite have all the details. But the point is, in addition to the natural fear from, from the deaths occurring from fentanyl, there's also this confusion that I worry just sort of adds to the fear. And there's already some good indication that lawmakers and prosecutors, prosecutors in some states have called to charge fentanyl sellers with murder in cases of death. And there was actually a California proposal that was stopped in the legislature in January, but the supporters plan to go forward, gathering signatures to try and bring it to the voters with a ballot measure in the fall. And my worry is that a push for more punishment, while understandable, it does it raises several questions. One for me is, do the sellers generally know what's in their supply? So are you really punishing people for, for knowing what they're doing? But I think more importantly than that, I think we've learned from the war on drugs that we can't punish our way to reducing supply and demand. And finally, as we know, that punitive drug policies tend to disproportionately impact black and brown folks. So I'll just end this topic with a quote from UC San Francisco's Dr. Daniel Ciccarone, who in 2020 testified to Congress about the fentanyl crisis. I'll just kind of paraphrase. It's a long quote. Fear, moral panic, penalization of drug use all lead to stigma, marginalization, blah, blah, blah. And this is counter to the goals of public health, which wants folks not to run and hide, but to come forth for prevention and treatment services. Overdose deaths due to illicit fentanyl represent a historic crisis full of challenges, blah, blah, blah. But this era is also one of historic opportunity to rebalance our drug policies more in favor of demand reduction, including treatment, and away from failed prohibitionist policies. So I'll just leave this topic with the question of, are we going to answer Dr. Ciccaroni's call to rebalance drug policy? Earlier this month, when Biden's harm reduction grant proposal came out, it was widely criticized. So I think it could be an uphill battle. All right, moving on to topic number two some inconvenient and uncomfortable truths about nicotine and recovery. So I read an advice column in the Oregonian newspaper not long ago where the reader wrote in and it said, is there rehab for cigarette smokers? The doctor who responded said, rehab is expensive, it's disruptive for the patient, and it's usually used when there's a threat of, a very real threat of physical harm from alcohol or drug use. So, of course, it sounds absurd on its face that somebody would think about telling their spouse or their employer, I got to take 30 days off away from my responsibilities to go live in a rehab and quit smoking. But it does bring up some important issues that are probably some uncomfortable truths for some of us. So I've got some data here that is from a 2015 talk by an Ohio doctor who specializes in addiction. It's good stuff. I got the link in my online piece. But 
He says, people with substance use disorders are much more likely to smoke or use nicotine in any form. 17% of U.S. adults are smokers or or use nicotine. Somewhere north of 80% of people with substance use disorders or in recovery use. So just let that sink in. We've got 17% of all adults, but it's somewhere higher than 80%, more than four times as many of people with substance use disorders or in recovery. And here's something scary too. People with substance use disorders are more likely to die from a smoking-related illness than from the addiction that brought them to treatment or, or caused problems in their lives. So think about that. Those of us in recovery are four times as likely to smoke and more likely to drive, die from smoking than from other addictions. So <clears throat> the doctor asks, why is it that almost all treatment programs allow smoking, even though they prohibit or severely limit coffee? He doesn't really answer the coffee question, and I think it demands an explanation. But he does say that the general wisdom when it comes to smoking is that it's too much. The fear, the stress of quitting nicotine is feared that it's feared that it could harm recovery or lead to relapse. But the research, search, he says, shows just the opposite. And this is a quote from him. People who quit smoking or using any form of nicotine while being treated for another addiction are less likely to relapse back to their primary addiction and also more likely to remain abstinent from nicotine. So there's a new California law that requires rehab patients now to be assessed for nicotine use disorder and offer treatment if they want it. I think based on the evidence from that doctor um, of the prevalence of nicotine use and the success of quitting while in recovery, it seems like a step in the right direction. Now, if they could just let the coffee flow in rehab. But there is a a rehab patient's bill of rights legislation that's moving through the legislature in California this year. So if anyone's listening who can bend somebody's ear, maybe add a coffee provision. All right. The third one I'm calling a novel approach to harm reduction in Portland, Oregon. Sort of a middle-aged play on words because I recently interviewed Jordan Barnes, whose new book is called Bridgetown, a harm reduction novel. It's a fictional tale of a syringe exchange service in Portland. It's coming out March 6th, and I interviewed him recently, and I just put the interview up on SoberLiningsPlaybook.com. But Portland, like many other places around the country, has been linked to the opioid crisis, and that's a tragedy. But with tragedy, there's often innovation. And some of these places that are known for having been hardest hit by the opioid crisis have also become incubators for innovation when it comes to harm reduction. So a little bit about Jordan Barnes, the author of that book, who writes about harm reduction in Portland. He grew up in Hawaii. He moved to Portland, Oregon to go to college. He ended up with an education in shooting heroin and coke. His first book, One Hit Away, is a memoir about his recovery journey that began with a detox in Portland. And he found that detox, he told me, by way of compassionate staff at a syringe exchange. And I think that's important because um, a lot of people would look at harm reduction programs and say that they enable people to keep using. But to the extent that somebody's going to use anyway, and it keeps them safe, and it puts them in touch with people who might funnel them to treatment services, you know, I think that's a very, pretty strong case for them. So after detox, he made his way back to Hawaii, where he did a long stint in a residential rehab before writing his memoir. 
So his new book is fiction, but it's very much rooted in his, his experiences with harm reduction services. And of course, as we talked, we had to turn our attention a little bit to Oregon's Measure 10, which decriminalizes uh, for possession of most drugs for use. And there's been a lot of concerns raised about it. Some of the concerns are about whether there's the support infrastructure that exists uh, to help people who would otherwise be caught up in the criminal justice system. Jordan's a little bit optimistic. He did on-the-ground research for his book with staff at harm reduction service places, as well as with advocates behind Oregon's Measure 110. So if you want to read more to get a sense of his optimism, check out my interview at silverliningsplaybook.com. Or better yet, look for Bridgetown, a harm reduction novel by Jordan Barnes, wherever you buy books. And that, my friends, is the big three. I'll be back next month. And until then, stay tuned to RMA and be well, Monsters. Yeah, thanks, Grant. That was awesome. Yeah, um, I love that. I'm so glad we got that going and uh, Grant's getting better. And uh, yeah, and so look forward to a, another one at the end of this month. Yeah, um, that fentanyl's, man. We also have a uh, Monsters Speak, Speak, Speak... What did they been up to? Let's take a peek. The segment we call Monster Speak. Speak, 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 speak. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. So, uh, well, uh, it's like how many, how many special things can we jam into one episode? As many as possible. <laughs> I want as many of these segments as possible. And um, so this, uh, this was an email we got from uh, from one of our favorite. Monsters, uh, and she writes, or he could be she or he. She or he. This is anonymous. Anonymous. Hey, Mike. I wanted to give my two cents regarding anxiety and self medicating. Kind of an outlet for me and input for the show. If you choose to use it, we're using it. Thank you. I just ask that you do not use my name. If that last bit of editing was a little choppy, it's because we accidentally accidentally used used your name name. and then had to go back and cut it out. So, (laughs) okay. He or she says. I started drinking in my teens, and looking back, I see that it was uh, it was a way for me to feel like I fit in and not to be so self-conscious about all the normal things that teenagers deal with. I was much more relaxed and happy and cool when I was drinking, according to my underdeveloped brain. I used to think it was so cool, <laughs> me too. Me, too. Now I think I'm the opposite of cool. Yeah. Fast forward 10 years when I met my husband and started a family. I stopped drinking completely for a while. Then I fell into uh, the habit of drinking while socializing with friends. We were a close group of parents that hung out every weekend while our kids played. There was al- there was almost always alcohol involved. Some of us drank more than others. I considered myself a social drinker and couldn't imagine how people had fun without alcohol being involved. Mm-hmm. Again, I felt more fun and relaxed after a few beers. In my mid-40s, I had some life events that caused me a lot of worry and anxiety. Aging parents, the loss of my parents... Heroin addiction of a loved one that I thought I could, quote, love enough to make them stop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chronic illnesses of one of my children that the doctors could not diagnose. I think uh, this is when I really started hitting the alcohol hard to numb my worries and anxiety. Every night I would drink a bottle or two of wine. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah. One or two. Or two. <laughs> and then eventually added vodka to the mix. Not uh, to the wine, but like in the middle or after. Vodka doesn't go well with wine. It doesn't, but as a chaser, maybe. Um, yeah. I felt like it was the only way I could calm my worries and racing thoughts. This pattern continued and got worse for about 10 years. I thought it was an aging thing. You know, it's just getting wasted all the time. You know what? That me too. Like I, for years, like uh, you know, as I was pickling myself every night, I would say to myself, "Man, I, I'm getting old and forgetful, and and man, things." I'm like, I have this sense of impending doom all the time. Yeah. I thought it was just I was getting cl- it, older. Yeah, it's huh. it's actually not because now for me being sober, uh, I feel sharper than ever. Yeah, ever. true. Um, and go on. So she thought it was the increases as you age. Uh, also, I blame the memory loss and brain fogginess for getting older. Yep, yep. Um, looking back, I realized that the drinking was making the anxiety so much worse and was also pickling my brain, just like what Mike said. I had a few times where I had what I now recognize as anxiety attacks where I felt like I couldn't sit still or stop shaking. And I didn't trust myself to call anyone for help, thinking they would just think I was crazy. Mm. I felt like my body was going to jump off the balcony of its own volition if I went upstairs, even though in my mind, I didn't want to do that. I was Mm. so afraid that I was going to harm myself. I finally called a good friend who came over and talked me out of the insanity I was feeling. She encouraged me to get therapy and talk to my doctor about anti-anxiety medications. Thanks to the support of my family and finding the RMA podcast and the community of monksters, I decided that I needed to change my drinking habits. I realized that being sober didn't mean I was dull or a party pooper. I know that I am not a person that can have one or two drinks and then stop. Once I get started, it's full speed ahead. After only a few months of sobriety, I noticed I felt much less anxious and didn't need to take Clonopin to feel normal. I still keep it on hand uh, in case I ever have another episode like I experienced before. It's like a safety net for me. Right. As I've heard Mike and Nat say many times, there is no problem we can't make, can't be made worse by drinking. Very wise words. Anonymous. Anonymous. Yeah, thank, thank you. Wow, that Co- was a lot. A couple things that stick out to me. Um, well, first I want to say that um, we talked a little bit today, you and I, and uh, decided that we should probably have the monksters speak, <clears throat> be reflective of the main topic at hand yeah. that we're going to cover that week. So, since it. we're talking about anxiety and depression, um, you know, I thought it would be good to solicit some some stories about anxiety and depression from the listeners. So, um, agreed. So, uh, having the keeping the clonopin around, right, is something that I did when I first quit drinking with weed. I kept some weed around. Right. And um, I also had um, insomnia, Mm. bad insomnia when I was drinking, mostly probably because I was drinking, but I did get a prescription for Ambien, Mm. right? And even though um, eventually I was able to go to sleep, I had a long stretch of about a month where I wasn't sleeping more than like two hours a night. And it was starting to drive me absolutely crazy. Is that when you were, you were still drinking and you were having this, right? Well, actually funny. You should say that it was during a a one year where I had quit in January. I did a dry January and then I extended it out into April. Um, and, but it wasn't until April that I started having a problem sleeping. Hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. So finally I went to the doctor because I was like, I can't take it anymore. And I explained what was going on. And he goes, um, 
he wrote me a prescription for Ambien, mm-hmm. and then he said, uh, "Why don't you have a couple? Of, why don't you have a couple glasses of wine at night to help yeah, you fall you'll asleep?" Yeah, you'll feel better. That very same night, I went out and bought a bottle of wine, and oh. there, there was four months gone. And and then, as if that wasn't enough, I was taking the Ambien at the same time. Oh, yeah. So the wine and the Ambien, I didn't bad. have any of those weird, you know, I didn't go into the living room and set the house on fire or make mud pies in the backyard. Like Ambien really makes people do some weird shit, you know? Yeah, or just completely pass out. Well, that that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah, right. But I've heard like Tiger Woods had a story. Well, where- you know, I, these celebrities who always blame Ambien for wandering around doing weird shit. Yeah. Like, I got wonder how much of that is really Ambien and how much of that is just their fucking weirdness. It's mostly you know? PCP, probably. Well, you know, who knows? But I guess my point is, and there is a point. The point is, I still have that bottle of Ambien ah. in the medicines cabinet upstairs because ten milligram. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The first one he wrote me was five, and yeah. the five, and I was breaking the pills in half because. I'll drink myself into a stupor for 40 years, but I hate over-the-counter medication or prescription medication. Like, I don't want to take it. Right. You know? Uh, it never occurred to me to, like, party, a, party the Ambien. Yeah, you know? I don't know how you would do that. I, I used People to, do it. There's a whole subreddit dedicated to it. It's hilarious. The, the, the Ambien Elephant, or what is it? Walrus. The, the, the Ambien, Ambien Walrus. walrus is, yeah. is something. I was... It, that reminds me exactly of my experience with Ambien. I was in a similar position. I was definitely drinking alcoholically, and I was having... I've had insomnia forever for different reasons, but this time I was... I went to the doctor. Same thing. And of course... Uh, you know, I wanted this Ambien, I wanted to sleep and I got it and I started taking it and it worked beautifully. Mm. But one night in particular, you know, and I would have, I remember it. This is what I remember. I was having a red, a glass of red wine and I was like, all right, I'll take my Ambien (laughs) with the red wine and, um, you know, then I'll go sleep, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to lie in bed before you. Right. I was walking around with this bottle of wine. I had taken the Ambien, I don't know, 10 minutes prior, and I all of a sudden, I woke up on the floor with the table knocked over and the wine everywhere. Like, <laughs> I just, like, I must have just, boom, knocked right out. out. And that was when my wife was like, no more. She didn't say no more alcohol. I mean, she was always saying that, but we were like, <laughs> no, no more Ambien, Ambien for right? you. Um, yeah, so that was, that was scary, I have to say. But yeah, I think a lot of people have these kinds of feelings. The other thing is- well, The thing is, you keep that, you keep it as an escape valve, even right. though you never use it. Like, I haven't taken an Ambien in five years. What about the weed you were hiding in your garage? It's still in the garage. <laughs> I went out there. I went out there a couple of weeks ago to move some stuff around, yeah. and I'm like, I wonder if that's still there. And it's still there. <laughs> so you it's know. still there. I like. I like because how do you throw away weed? Like, what do you do? Just put it in the garbage? Right in the garbage. Or maybe I should a little should. note to the garbage man. Hey guys, you have know. fun, or throw it in the fireplace this and is, uh, read a book. <laughs> no, if I throw it in the fireplace, the house is going to smell like weed. It's going to be, be <laughs> complicated to explain to my 17 year old. Yeah, like what's going on, Dad? What's <laughs> happening? Um, but a lot of great points in there. We're going to touch on some more of, uh, of what you were talking about here. Uh, the self-harm things. I went through those same yeah. feelings. Um, but your body wants out. It's hard to explain. Like you, you don't, it's almost like you have this obvious reason why you're feeling this way. So, mm-hmm. but you can't see it. What's wrong with me? Why do my soul? Why do I want to kill myself all the time? You know? Well, it's funny because I always used to say about myself, like, I'm not the kind of person who would ever kill themselves. Like, I, I just, I figure when you're alive, there's a chance that things could get better. Well, that's a except, great attitude. Except, you know, coming to the end of my drinking career and, you know, and, there were, and then of course during the cocaine years, like, I would regularly walk around going, I should just slip my throat right now. Or I should just jump in front of this car or I should jump in front of this train. And like, it never got beyond like a, um, Mm -hmm. just the thought. 
Right. But now I think back and I'm like, I, I, most people probably don't do that. Right. <laughs> I, right. I don't, don't go, so. uh, I should just fucking kill myself. You know, it was a way of life for so long. Yeah. I would wake up every morning, dreading the day, wishing I was dead, going to bed See, every that, night, wanting yeah. to never wake up. That, that I didn't have. Huh. I was, for me, it was very fleeting. Huh. But it was, but it, but it worries me because you always hear these cases like guys driving down a country road, perfectly fine, no history of depression, and then he just turns his car into a brick wall. One yeah, day, well, you know? I have those intrusive thoughts, yeah. and we've talked about this before. When I'm driving, I just see myself turning into yeah. oncoming traffic. I don't, it's, That's what I'm talking it's about. It's a PTSD thing. I've been told, but uh, huh. I hate it. I hate it. I had terrible PTSD after the Bronx. Oh, uh, um, So we got another one. I didn't see it. Oh yeah, on I here, forgot to put that on. That's all right. I can read it. Um, this is from Liz. Monster speak, speak, speak. Should I do that again? No, no, no we I did just it like once. Hi, Mike. This is a great topic. Uh, read this in David Poses' book. Uh, the biggest sign of trauma is not recognize that you've been through it or minimizing it or denying it or joking about it. You know, that that stood out to me too. That sentence in the book really hit me over the head. Read it again. The biggest sign of trauma mm-hmm. is not recognizing you've been through it or minimizing or denying it or joking about it. And yes, that self-deprecating humor that I get into, the yeah. joking your way through it, right. it's like a, a weird defense mechanism. I mean, self, self-deprecation self is not terrible. I mean, the entire comedic careers have been built on a base of self-depreciation. But right? is it just obfuscating, like, crippling depression? Sometimes, but maybe making light of trauma or passing it off as a joke is a defense mechanism mm. so you don't have to deal with it. So you don't have to go any deeper with it. I'm guilty of that for sure. Yeah, I think I am too. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Liz carries on. I tend to minimize my father's suicide saying it was so long ago. Uh, I feel like it happened to someone else. I was 23. That is very young. Wow. Uh, unbeknownst to me, my mother was diagnosed with leukemia. My father, who'd been manic depressive but rejected medication, had just retired and took his life. Mom passed away six weeks later. I've been, wow. I've been told that my dad's mother died in childbirth, but when going through papers, I found that she died by suicide. Oh my goodness. So I've been very aware of depression, suffered on and off. And of course, that's one of the reasons I turned to alcohol. Uh, one time I truly was near suicide was after a bad breakup. Uh, the shrink threatening to commit me if I wouldn't try Prozac. I did, and it saved my life, and I'm still on it 25 years later. Uh, I'm going to go back to that too, because that's a David Poses thing mm. also. Um, regarding sobriety, I'm less depressed uh, after a year without alcohol than I've ever been. I'm more on an even keel. The racing thoughts are still in my head all the time. I try to meditate, but despite keeping at it, I can't seem to get them to turn off the way a nice Chardonnay could. <laughs> uh, feel free to read any or all of this. And again, thank you for all that you do, uh, Lizby. So. Wow. Um, thank you, Liz. Yeah, thank you. And, and that's a hell of a story, Liz. And I can see why you would want to, you know, keep some of that stuff at arm's length because that's 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 difficult to deal with, especially when you're dealing with it when you were 23. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm no stranger to intense trauma going through that. And, you know, for for me, you know, when I when I lost my wife, it was very. Um, I had a infant son to take yeah. care of myself, so it was very easy for me to put all the stuff that went on with my wife at arm's length because I had an immediate thing that I had to deal right. with, but you can, you can kick that can down the road, but the can is going to still come, be there. Come you get know, you. Yeah, eventually you have to stop kicking it and you have to start dealing with it. How and, did you eventually, if you don't mind me asking, uh, how did you eventually, pro- did you ever like work it out with a therapist or I, I didn't work it out with a therapist, but 
I did do a lot of meditating. I did talk to a lot of people, a lot of friends. And um, you like addressed it though in some way, I, like I, I, directly. I mean, in some sense, it. in some sense, there is. It's a constant addressing, right? Because it's part of it's part of your life story. So you're always addressing it mm-hmm. in some sense, you yeah. know. Um, you know, every every time I see my son, in some sense I address it. You sure. Know? Um, like today, for example, like he was at um, the school he goes to. A kid in his homeroom over the last break. Uh, came like he had apparently he had a brain tumor and oh. it, and the symptoms just started up like a couple weeks ago. Wow! And um, he died today. No kidding, <clears throat> Jack's yeah. age in Jack's homeroom. Wow! So oh my gosh, you know, I, and you know, I I get the email from the school this morning about this, and you know, obviously every time I hear of somebody dying young or dying before their time, it brings me right back to the circumstance that I had with my yeah. wife, and um, you know, I felt. So, so that's what I mean by you constantly deal with it because there's always something that's going to remind you right. of, of that, of that trauma, of that, you know. Sure. You know, but you also have to put it in perspective and realize that, um, you know, life is, that is what life is. I mean, it's eventually, we all lose people. None know? of us is getting out of here alive, right. my father always I mean, said. I mean, what was the, I forget if it's a Christian thing or, or if it was a Buddhist thing. Where, no, it was, I think it was Buddhist where, you know, a guy came to the Buddha and said, hey man, like, can you help me? You know, I'm going crazy with all this, um, the suffering. Can you make my mind quiet? And he said, um, he said, I will if you go to every house and bring me a seed back from each house that hasn't suffered a tragedy. And he went around to all the houses and every house he went to, he couldn't get a seed because everybody had lost somebody or everybody had a tragedy they were dealing with. So and the people probably thought he was like a door to door salesman. I'm like, like, fuck off. I'm like, like giving you a seed. Get out of here. Yeah. Everybody. It's true. There's, there's trauma, enough trauma to go around. But, but I guess, I guess my point is you have to integrate, (coughs) excuse me, that experience with the rest of your life. Because if you set it apart, from your inner existence, it's just going to be out there and it's going to be fucking with you. Yeah. You know, I had a, uh, a psychiatrist, uh, who was very, very good. And his theory was I had some deep seated trauma that was causing this, my addictive behavior. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, we tried to find something and I was having trouble and he explained it like this, whatever this trauma is that you're not immediately remembering. It's like an abscess. (coughs) And if you don't get to it, it'll just continue to grow. And it's right. this, you know. It'll become a chronic condition that you, you know. Yeah, the downside is I, I've never, I never came up with my big trauma that we never got to the bottom of it. But as the longer I get, I am sober, and the longer I'm doing these self-reflections, I'm starting to remember things. Nothing crazy. Yeah, yeah. But I'm starting to be able to identify things that may have uh, been reasons or some traumas that may have exacerbated it. Micro traumas. Yeah. Maybe. In the aggregate. And this thing about Liz taking the Prozac for 25 years, um, you know, that came up a lot for David Poses, who is a very um, strong advocate of um, buprenorphine. Bupre- buprenorphine. 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 Mm. And he said that people were constantly coming up to him and saying, well, when are you going to get off that stuff? Right. right? Yep. And he was like, you know, would you ask a diabetic? When are you coming, you know, off, when that are you coming off that insulin? Because it's got your stuff in check. I mean, that's the way to look at 
medication. For That's the stuff, way I for feel medica- about it. You know, for, for mental health issues. Right. Like my know? blood pressure medication. Uh, one time, one of my counselors, I was having a conversation with, you know, when I was on medication, uh, like buprenorphine and, and that sort of thing. And I was being made to feel extremely bad by the sober community, so to speak, about being on MAT because they make you feel uh, insecure about your sobriety and that you're not really sober. And uh, so instead of encouraging me to continue to take this medic- life-saving medication, um, I got this horrible feeling about it. And so one of my counselors said to me, he goes, well, you know, do you think about your blood pressure medication like that, you know, you have to take it every day, but it, it's just to, to, to keep you safe. You know, it does not stop your sobriety. I think the sobriety is more about the quality of life and the behaviors and, you know, how are you really feeling? type of thing. So, yeah. you know, the point's well taken, and I, I agree. Um, we're going to get more into his book when we get there. But first, we've got a life update to do, and we've got so much because <laughs> so much has gone on. It's been a very intense two weeks. It has. We took a dark week last week, and thank you guys for being patient with us. Um, Mike you know, was still, away. We're still pulling like 300 downloads on a couple of days, which I don't know if people were like... Oh, that might be a new episode. Let me. Get oh, it. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in a few. It's it's. And thank you guys so much for continuing yes, to uh, to support us and listen. And uh, you know what? Do you, I mean, we did so much stuff. I wrote a lot down. Um, you went to Miami. I, boy, did I go to Miami! Um, the, and had a, many adventures. Uh, and uh, why don't you start there, or do you want me to go because you're coughing away? No, I'll, I'll dispense with Miami. Uh, what were you doing in Miami, quickly. sir? What What was the point, sir? The point uh, was to get away from the freezing cold uh, and get down to a beach environment and spend some time. Uh, and we out have of a beach in town here. Yeah, it's a uh, rocking cold. Running there uh, earlier today, uh, and it was um, you know thirty degrees and the wind was blowing at twenty miles an hour. So that was not the beach experience. I was not the one for. you wanted. I had been to Miami Beach a couple of times. Uh, for work. Obviously, I was still drinking at the time, and I thought Miami Beach was a fabulous and awesome place to go. Uh, of course, I was there without my family, and I was at a work conference drinking, so, um, <laughs> you know. But uh, I remember thinking to myself, wow, the, the the beach is really cool. The water looks like the Caribbean. Maybe it'd be a good place to take the family. So we go, we go down there. I, I book a place uh, in sort of the mid beach area, because there's South beaches, which is where the people wander around with no pants on and stuff. Uh, yeah. And then there's, you know, the more moderate area where we were, where, where it's more families and stuff. Families in thongs. I mean, uh, your I wife mean, was uh, regaling me of stories of, uh, naked, uh, women walking around traumatizing your you know, children. I think she saw more naked women than I did. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> and I believe me, was I was looking and I, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't yeah. see a lot. Where are these naked women? Um, but one thing that we, okay, so there were not a ton of naked women. You know what there was a ton of? Naked men. <laughs> also South beach. You have to go down there for that. Um, no, uh, booze was everywhere, uh, yeah. everywhere. And, and, uh, the first night we were there, I was, I was getting a little itchy, you know? And so we went out to this Cuban restaurant, uh, called Havana 57, uh, which I guess the revolution was 57, maybe. Oh. I don't know. It was down in this, uh, sort of commercial strip. And I asked the guy, I said, do you have any non-alcoholic beer? And he, he looked offended and he looked at me and he's like, sir, this is not a health food restaurant. Yeah, he is. I'm like a health food restaurant. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so no. The, so I didn't find any. No, I, every place I went to, nobody had nobody had it. 
Except that the the last day, Aaron and I went out to a vegan restaurant. Of course, in South Beach, a health food, and they. But they didn't have any beer, but they they had a very nice kombucha that I had. But uh, Mm. so it was very strange uh, just to see even more than Mexico. Like I've been to the all inclusives in Mexico. I've seen that sort of behavior. It's it's a little different when it's like, you know, just a two and a half hour flight away and every single person is drinking. And the idea that you wouldn't be is considered insanity. insanity, It's part of the culture. So I enjoyed getting up, you know, at six in the morning and going running, you know, along the beach and stuff. And there's a fair number of people that do that. I, I, I can't say that everybody in Miami was drunk the entire time we were there, but it's a party city. People associate the beach. I mean, anytime I've been on a vacation in a beachy area, it's the theme. It's like, you're here to party. That yeah. means if you're here to relax, get away from work, this is the time to drink. I don't know how many of those people go back to work and are still drinking like that, but I think everybody who goes down there, that's that's what they make you feel like you've got to be doing. Yeah. I just know that it was ridiculously expensive, and had I been drinking, it would have been you know a third again more You know, if yeah. I had to spend money on all the alcohol and stuff. But the problem, of course, is then, you know, you have to find stuff to do that's not sitting around drinking. Uh, so we went to the Everglades when, and took a fan boat tour one day. Oh, cool. That was nice. There was alligators and stuff. And then the other day we went down to Key Largo and did some kayaking and saw a manatee. And, uh, you know, it was great. All the kids get along? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's, Everybody get along. That's the best part. Yeah. The hotel fucked us. Don't ever stay at the Cadillac Hotel on Miami Beach, yeah. though. It's off my list. I booked two oceanfront double queens and i end up getting a room with a view of the air conditioning ductwork and uh one next to an elevator shaft on separate floors seven floors apart was it when you're traveling with kids you know that's a that's a non-starter and the hotel was very non-responsive to my complaints until i checked out and then they knew i was going to savage them in a yelp yelp review so they gave me a couple of discounts back but uh what's the deal um with like covid i mean there's so much going on in the world there's no covid in in florida because it just it disappeared it doesn't exist right yeah, the last time i saw a mask in florida was when i stepped off the plane in miami airport mm. yeah well so, we're starting and, to get and, there. and i will add first time i took off a you know a mask out in public and i get sick yes first time in two years i've, I've even had a cold so Right. And they're starting, you know, we're seeing that uh, we're in New York, as you know, which is one of the stricter areas or has been one of the better places to stay safe, uh, you know, wearing masks and things like that. And uh, the last, you know, the last thing to go, I think, was the schools that we were waiting for. Right. Today was the first or yesterday was the first day without a mask. Yesterday was the first day. And, and you know, you have to think like my son, who's seven, has just spent two extremely formative years in elementary school with this mask on. And yeah, I'm glad he never got COVID. Thankfully, as far as I know, he didn't get sick anyway. And uh, it's just such a weird thing, you know, but, and I told him, I said, you know, Max, you, uh, you don't have to wear a mask, but why don't you bring it? And if you're uncomfortable, you know, wear it you know because he was at a point where he was wearing it all the time and monsters out there if you've got little kids i've seen this a lot with that age group they're so accustomed to it even when he went to play basketball you know he would leave it on while he's playing i'm like max you could take it off so you know a lot of a lot of big changes in the air we've got uh, the uh the russian uh, ukraine conflict yeah that's bad i I wonder if we have any listeners in the ukraine well I don't know. I don't think so. We can check. The, I wanted uh, to look that up. 
Or Russia or something. Now, my people, <laughs> my father's grandfather was from Odessa, Ukraine. Mm. Uh, and they fled. You know, I was thinking about this. They fled Ukraine, what was it, 100 years ago? People um, are fle- always fleeing you, the Ukraine. You know, and um, I wonder what, what the reason was. I can't remember. Like the, Why would they flee Ukraine 100 years ago? Why, Are they Jewish? Um, yes. It was a pogrom, probably. And so, interestingly, now... A hundred or so years later, again, there are 800-something thousand uh, Ukrainians fleeing again. And it's just, it's interesting. I, I read an article that was sort of comparing the two exit, mass exodus of Ukraine mm. and how it's continually being, you know, taken over. And uh, anyway, I, I support, obviously, um, their autonomy. And um, it's just a really scary time over there. Yeah, I, um, I can't imagine. Um being in that situation. Um, I listened to an interview on NPR and this kid said uh, they were interviewing him and he said he was 24. Uh, so he's one of the kids that was not allowed to um, leave the country because any, anybody between the age of 18 and 60 basically has to remain, pick up a rifle and, and fight the Russians. And he said, uh, you know, the reporter asked him like, how are you doing? And he said, what a bizarre question. He's like, last week, the only decision I had to make was what game I was going to download for my PS4. Yeah. And this week I'm trying to decide where to go sign up to fight the Russian army to the death. It's crazy. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, it's been a very strange week. Yeah, you have those people. And then I saw another story um, of guys going back into into Ukraine to fight. So, like, uh, Poland is taking a, a lot of refugees. Yeah. And they were showing that um, some, like, very few... Guys are like, I'm going to fight, you know, stop the Russians and going back. And and so it's kind of interesting. Uh, I can't even imagine. I hope we never have to be in that situation here. But Did you uh, see that our um, Cracker Jack police force on Long Island is <laughs> no. is collecting uh, guns? They, mm. They're going to ship them to the Ukraine. Is that a joke? No. Aaron sent me this thing. I, wow. Yeah, I'll well, post the link. Thank you, local... Police, I, I guess. Suppose. Can you I mean, ship it, guns? Is would, that even a thing you can do? I would prefer they just catch the people that tried to steal my car. <laughs> no, start <laughs> there. Um, so all of that is happening. As many of you know, I've I've got this new job that keeps evolving and sucking up my time, but it's very exciting. And interestingly, I found out that Mike was actually in the same industry. Yeah. Um, which is uh, it's hard to explain if you don't know it. It's the uh, independent medical examination industry, IMEs. <laughs> I won't bore you with the details, but I've now um, I'm now the director of operations, which means I am the boss. Are you um, the COO? I don't have a C thing. Y- okay. You know, it's just director of operations. You know, I've been there. D-O-O. A something like that. Okay. I, but, I just want to give you. D-O-O, I'll take it, you know, but we have like six offices. We got a main office where I go in and I'm hiring people and clearing out, you know, people who were not doing what they were supposed to. How does that make you feel when you have to let people go? It feels terrible. Um, Because you're a nice guy. It's very hard for me, especially when it's people that I didn't really see work and I don't know. But what I do know is once I got in there to analyze you know, where's our money going? Who's doing what work? It's, there's a lot of moving parts and some people just were not down to kind of follow me and, you know, where I was taking them. They were Mm. still on, you know, the, uh, nobody was watching the store and they were doing whatever they want. And, you know, I said, listen, I'm, I'm hired to make this thing work again. 
And uh, are you you coming along with me, or you know we're just gonna say shake hands and say have a nice day? And I don't know. Several of them moved on. Huh. So it's been pretty exciting, but it's nonstop. It's kind of interesting, and uh, I'm enjoying it. It's it's one of my passions is is business. You know, I don't talk about it a lot. But, um, you know, at first I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm, you know, the boss of this whole company. And it's not exactly like that. I have, right. you know, the guy who owns it and so forth. But, uh, and then I was looking at my resume and I'm like, well, no, this actually makes sense. I've been, yeah. I've, you know, started companies, ran companies, closed, opened, fixed, destroyed, you know, the whole <laughs> schmear. I have 22 years experience doing this kind of work. So it makes a lot of sense and a lot more sense, frankly, than owning a sports store. So that's kind of... No, I'm sure you're going to do an awesome job at it uh, as well. But I'm enjoying you it. You do like, need to have a lawyer on, on staff. Well, I'm thinking... Yeah? Mr. Mike. I'm not I'm not cheap. Once we get there, <laughs> this is a very... Let me just say, it's a good business. I mean, oh, I'm, it's... Yeah, the, uh, the books are amazing. I can't even believe it based on like how many problems there were. But so that's, that's been it, taken yeah. over my life, you know? Yeah, I mean, I can understand. I mean, you but, know, it's funny. Work is heating up on my end of the stick as well you yeah. know I, I, that's right I'm you too. calls all day and everything and uh i have a i have a work conference coming up um at the end of march march 26th and i can't tell you how many people that have specifically said to me can't wait to have a drink i want to have a drink with you mm-hmm. uh, to drink to toast uh, we lost a, a lawyer we used to work with she had cancer and passed away recently and mm-hmm. people want to drink to her health and they want to go out to dinner and drinks and they want to drink and i'm like fuck man this is going to be a little more i wouldn't say complicated it's just you know i, I really didn't expect that there was all this pent-up alcoholism oh my gosh <laughs> you know, that was going to just burst forth at, you know because this is the first conference that any of these folks have been to since COVID. wow right so there's a lot of like it's pent up socializing that's about to happen. You know? It's funny. The uh, uh, person that I, I hired today, actually, we have an office up in Newburgh in New York. Uh, yes. And we need uh, someone to be like a receptionist for our doctors there. And I was on the phone with this person and I saw on her resume she was a bartender. And, uh, and the next date we need her there, the first one would be... Uh, uh, St. Patty's Day. Uh, and so uh, I just, and it's funny because it was coming from me, but I just sort of said, oh, you know, it's St. Patty's Day, but please, you know, don't get wasted and come in. You're choking <laughs> around. And uh, and then she says, oh, you know, I don't drink. Oh. And I'm like, you know, I said, I haven't had a drink in four and a half years or whatever it is. I've, and uh, and it was, we didn't go ahead and get into a recovery discussion, but it right. was just kind of like interesting. Do you I think mean, she was uh, a member of the club? Or a friend uh, of Bill's. I hate that expression. Uh, from now on, guys, instead of a friend of Bill's, you say a friend of Nats. Right. Like or a friend that. of Mike's. Or a friend of Mike's, but yeah. probably more likely a friend <laughs> of Nats. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of cool. And and I'm in a, in a place where the owner of my company knows that I don't drink and uh, yeah. I feel well, confident. But you, you, you have a different situation. Lawyers are notoriously everybody drunk. Everybody drinks. Well, I mean... Ev- Right. I mean, everybody's notoriously <laughs> drunk in every industry, I think. But um, and a lot of these aren't even lawyers. They're like gas company and electric company people. But uh, And they're even drunker. Sometimes they are. I've had a, a couple of conferences where a guy staggered out of his uh, hotel room without his pants on and went up to the bar and demanded more drinks after the bar was closed. That was a good year. Uh, <laughs> didn't see him next year. No. No. <laughs> Uh, but that kind of shit happens, so it's, I'm going to have to be on my guard and just. I'm glad I'm sort of preparing myself for it now. Yeah, we'll we'll get you through it. Um, there was also the State of the Onion uh, oh. from our our dear dear leader, uh, and actually, or as um, 
Putin calls him Alzheimer Joe. Hey, does he say that? <laughs> I That's think great. He said that. But there was one particular clip I wanted to play for everybody, just because you you know his son Hunter wrote the memoir about recovering from his addictions, and so this is definitely on our president's mind. You know, we tried to get Hunter on the podcast, but we weren't able to we contact his publicist. Hard. But we we can still try and do that. Yeah, maybe just, we should reach out to uh, Dresner and Sh- and Shrank. Didn't they have him on? They did. Maybe they sh- maybe she could pass on the published publicist. Uh, yeah, I, I talked to her a little bit about that. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, someday. Anywho, so this was a clip from the State of the Union. Come if on. you're suffering from addiction, <laughs> you know you should know you're not alone. I believe in recovery, and I celebrate the 23 million. 23 million Americans in recovery. So that was it. I just thought it was cool to hear. Well, it's nice of the president to say that. Yeah. And, our, and he's giving out free crack pipes to everybody. Yes. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> yeah. Um, our previous president, you know, to be fair, uh, also kind of made a thing, uh, made some public statements about the opioid crisis. And I was very happy that he did that. I'm happy that this president, too, is doing something about it or t- at least talking about it because is he doing days, something about it or um, is he just talking about it i don't know uh, there's i mean there's sure. all kidding about the crack pipes aside i'm not i probably should know more about this than i do about mm-hmm. the whatever that money is being allocated for yeah let's look into that we can yeah. do a whole expose on it so well, hopefully it's some some harm reduction stuff and not just uh you know cuz a lot of times they count the money that they're they're putting into law enforcement as recovery as like money Mm. for earmarked for the drug thing and you know yeah more cops is not really the answer it's not but um i was getting text from my uh, my brother who's a, a right winger you know all night with his you know his commentary on it and so we, we have fun though. i can't even watch those things you anymore know. i don't care who's giving them they're just so yeah and then we shouldn't talk politics anyway. yeah no um but um one other thing i did want to mention was oh so uh, somehow my son Noah and I were discussing non-alcoholic beer. I can't remember why. I think we were at a restaurant or something. We, we took this trip. Oh, I went on this trip. In any case, I said, you know, Noah, beer tastes like crap, but there is one beer that if it was a zero zero, I would drink it. And I know that it was Guinness. And uh, there is one out, I think, in England. And this is one of those NA beers that I would actually go for. But uh, interestingly... I said that, and he goes, you know, you shouldn't do that, Daddy. Uh, and I said, why? And he goes, because if you drink the even if you drink the alcohol-free beer, it's going to make you get into the habit of tasting beer and wanting that flavor. And this is his. Has he been going to AA meetings or something? Well, he's my son, and uh, maybe he listens <laughs> to the podcast. I don't think so. But I thought that was a really interesting, you know, because people do say that, but from the mouths of babes. <clears throat> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so uh, and. I have those feelings too. It's one of the reasons why when I am out to a restaurant, like we went on this vacation um, to the Poconos and uh, they had NA beer on the menu and I stopped myself. I like, I still have kind of like um, a bad feeling about it. Like it gives me, maybe it's indoctrination, but because you do it and are fine, I'm kind of like, well, Mike does it. But then when I went to order it, they always only have, like, it's like the Heineken one. The Heineken one's good. O'Doul's. O'Doul's is not even worth And I drinking. just, I don't know. I was like, I don't want to. I just yeah, didn't want don't. to. I want a Guinness, non-alcoholic, but I do not, I don't know. I just, it, it makes me nervous. I don't want to, like. Don't do is, anything that makes you nervous. No, because this is working for me. Not drinking anything alcoholic. Then don't change it. If yeah. it ain't broke, don't fix it. I don't know. Should we talk about the weight of air? 
and but, and David poses soon. Um, we're, we're at fifty six minutes. I know, but I miss everybody so much. I didn't talk to you last week. I know. I didn't I talk know. to our friends, the Monsters. I used to hear from you seven, eight times a day. I know. Now days go by. I'm sorry, guys. I wonder if you've relapsed. I, <laughs> I should probably I, reach out, but more often as my recovery partner, tandem sponsor, I at least get you once a day, don't I? Yes, usually. Yes. And sometimes the whole day will go by. And also uh, on the Discord, you know, like... Yes, that's true. All we of see our each monsters, other on the Discord, yes. Right. I mean, it's not the same, but all the monsters on the Inner Sanctum every morning were, good morning, good morning. Um, oh, I want to talk about the board game cafe. All right, all right, all right. We can move on. Um, so that leads us to our main topic discussion of the evening, evening, evening. <laughs> um, so today we're talking about... Um, the Weight of Air, uh, which is a book by um, the late author and recovery advocate David Poses. And we were going to also talk about treating depression after sobriety. Now, well, right. why are we doing that? We're doing that because David Poses... We believe. Um, well, I don't even want to go there. I just want to say that it was either some combination of his mental health issues or maybe... Something to do with drugs? I don't know. Well, he but, was a recovered addict. Yes. But he also suffered from depression. Uh, yes. But he also died on February 18th, I, I believe it was, of right. this year. And by all accounts, he was in an, a pretty stable place mm-hmm. in his life and, and everything. And so this came as quite a shock to, to all of his friends and his loved ones and, and everyone else. And... um well, you know, we're not close to the family, but regardless of which way it happened, it, it brought the topic to mind because I'm also, I suffer from depression, not like I used to, but, um, and I, I always, once I was told, you know, hey, you have co-occurring mental, uh, you know, mental health issues with addiction, they call it co-occurring, and, um, and that- Dual diagnosis. Dual diagnosis. And yeah. that, I felt empowered once they told me that. Once mm-hmm. I finally had a doctor say, you have bipolar depression and you have addiction. But the, the question becomes, you know, once you do get sober, which can happen, you can get sober. It does happen. So how do you go on and treat your depression afterwards? You can't just- get clean and then expect, you know, you might not get happy because that's how you were treating your depression, you know? Um, and so the question becomes like, what do you do after you get sober to treat your depression? Um, well, the thing with poses that it was really interesting and what sets his memoir apart a little bit from, from other recovery memoir memoirs is, you know, he, recognized that he was depressed before he ever put a drug into his body, right? He never found, saw joy in anything. And, you know, he, even as a kid, you know, and he, he tells the story of when the, um, you know, the police come to your, uh, your school and tell you this drug does this, yeah. this drug does that. Don't do that. It Look, this is what a bond looks like. You know, yeah. you plug up this hole here when you're sucking from that. Like they get very specific. I remember. Yeah. Anyway, he said that, um, he asked the officer what heroin did and, um, and the officer said, well, heroin makes you not feel anything right. at all. And he was like, where can I get some of that heroin? And he was like 11 or something at the time. Yeah. Yep. You know, same age as, as my kid, yep. you know? Um, and that really stood out to me. I mean, uh, so he always had the, me- the mental illness and, and he got into the heroin, uh, specifically opiates, really, in- really into opiates because they... 
that was the only drug that really seemed to um, ameliorate his depression. Mm-hmm. He said he he got drunk when he was 15 on alcohol once, and he, yeah. and he hadn't didn't get drunk after that ever. Yet he bounced around uh, for you know from the time he was. Um, you know, 13 to the time he was like almost 40, um, jumping from one relapse to the next, um, keeping all that a secret from his family. Um, but it was the, it was the opioids that, that helped him with the depression. None of the other drugs did. He tried smoking pot that didn't do anything. So what I got out of this book is like, I feel like he sets, um, opiates on like a, in a separate category, you know, because, First of all, what opiates do to your to your brain in terms of like multiplying the receptors, yeah. so that when you quit and and you cannot um, you can't create you your can't own. stay quit because because those you have multiple opioid receptors that are screaming out for yeah. for this this drug. So abstinence based programs for opiate addiction are doomed to failure and may actually cause death yeah. at a higher rate than medically assisted treatment. Yeah, it's right? it's so true. Now, I was in this same position. I was addicted to opiates of all kinds. Uh, and every time I tried to get clean, I would do these programs uh, or go try to go to AA, to go to NA, even in, um, in these rehabs where they would just, it's like cold turkey. They sometimes would give you a few days of Suboxone, maybe, um, I think one time it was just like four days on methadone and then you're done. But your body takes so long to recover from that that you're just in the worst shape. Like you feel awful. You're anxious. You're depressed. You, you Like the whole thing. And once I finally was able to get stabilized, you know, because when I was going through that, Suboxone wasn't as easily, uh, which is buprenorphine, wasn't right. as easy to get. It's still not easy to get. They treat it. They treat you like a criminal who is going to abuse it, sell it, that whole thing. So they're not trusting you. You feel like a criminal asking for it, but it, it was what I needed. And in fact, uh, Suboxone was the thing that allowed me to stabilize long enough to get into my recovery. And finally, you know, I was I came off it after a year or two. Um, what happened after that was I was sober for a little bit and then I started drinking and that took me back to it. Right. Um, but why did that happen? Who knows? But I mean, I've been, you know, analyzing for a long time, but yeah, I, without Suboxone, I may have never gotten off heroin. Well, and, and the whole, the whole thing about, um, making Suboxone seem like, uh, you know, somehow like it's a dirty thing or you you shouldn't use it. I mean, I mean, opiate addiction is improperly characterized as a moral defect, right? Because, um, and if we didn't moralize around drug use and drug addiction, it would be much easier to treat, I think. Um, Because he takes a look at, um, well, for for buprenorphine, he said, from the moment it started working, it was exactly what I needed. It raised my depression level from the basement to the first floor where he could actually start engaging with a therapist and making some progress and working on the stuff that he needed to work on. Exactly my experience. And he said, after taking it, it was no longer about survival. It was about living my life, right? I mean, because like, and he, he became quite a bit of an activist after his book came out because he wrote the book because he felt like staying silent was was like criminal 
like almost because the experience that he had, like he felt like he needed to, to help other people this way. And yeah. we, we've had a discussion about that before, about who's, who an activist, who should be an activist. Right. right? But, um, so he's been doing a lot of research and, and, you know, I listened to a, a podcast interview that he was on, um, about a year ago. Um, although I listened to it a couple of days ago and he he basically said that, that abstinence programs for opioids, uh, are inversely successful, meaning they're not successful at all. And they're actually harmful <clears throat> because of the way opioids change your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the way it changes your brain, abstaining from opioids is intensely difficult and there's really no reason to do it. Um, you know, sobriety gets easier with time if you're drinking alcohol, but not with opioids. Uh, it's always like the second, it's always like, you know, you're always white knuckling it on uh, opioids if you, do, if you don't have some, some assistance. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that, except to say that he, he makes it, that, that statement makes it sound like you can never come off of Suboxone, and that's not the case. Well, now, it is uncomfortable uh, to come off, but he, I did. And Well, he, he didn't, and he's, he never saw, well, he never saw a reason to. Right, and maybe there isn't one. There's no nothing to set to, that shows it's uh, detrimental to stay on a, a low dose of, of Suboxone if it helps you live, just like the insulin. I mean, I came off of it because, for a number of reasons, maybe they weren't good reasons. Maybe I could have stayed on it. But, you know, I ultimately came off and... Uh, stabilized but it took a lot of time right but then but then you also went to therapy and yes. stuff like that right because I went to everything we shouldn't confuse the suboxone for treatment for depression because that's not what it's for right it you know? stabilizes a an opiate addict so that they can get treatment right um so he he's very against abstinent-based programs for opioid addiction i don't think he really has much to say about them for um for alcoholism or for other drugs, but, um, well, it should be the same for, I mean, I mean, every substance is different, but I think his logic follows through though. Well, it, you have naltrexone for alcohol, right? right? There's which no is reason fine. not to continue to take something that keeps you alive, happy, healthy, and recovering. He, he cited this crazy study, um, a journal of the American medical institution study that showed that if your child is addicted to opioids, if teenagers say, and you put them on uh, buprenorphine, there's a 79% reduction in overdose related relapse death. Uh, however, if you send them to an abstinent based program um, and they relapse, there's a 69% chance they'll be dead within three days of leaving the program. Jesus. And if you do nothing, if you do nothing, no rehab, just give them Narcan and tell them to be careful. There is a lower risk uh, of them dying than if you had sent them to rehab in the first place. Yeah. And how many, what does that pe- say about the rehab uh, <laughs> situation? In America? Yeah. Th- this attitude that if you're on this Suboxone or, or methadone, that, you know, this is a bad thing and you're somehow not succeeding. And that was the feeling I was getting. I really came up and you know what you said earlier that, uh, David, uh, thought it was, you know, incumbent upon him to speak about it. I felt that same way about it and especially about uh, treating depression because I got a lot out of medication to help me through to the next level and I saw so much uh, resistance to it in my AA programs even at my outpatient programs which are not supposed to be 12-step based Mm -hmm. and um, but I knew in my heart that it was working I knew in my heart that I was progressing and feeling better and I thought you know, one day I am going to shout it from the mountaintops. 
you know, that this stuff can work for you and it is not. Well, look what you're doing right now. Right. This is it. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing what I always wanted to do. Really. <clears throat> I mean, I guess the final point with medication is he, he says um, his therapist told him you should think of, of medication like buprenorphine, like glasses. Um, if you're not ashamed to wear glasses, don't beat yourself up for needing medication to be at your best or to help you achieve your, your best. Yeah. And, and we're, I'm a proponent of, of medication assisted treatment. Now the other part in this book, and I've actually listened to the book three times. Wow. Um, well, that's what I do because you know, when I'm not actually reading it, I need to listen and listen again Mm -hmm. and I enjoy it every time I listen to it. Um, but, uh, one of the things I love about this book is the same reason I like other, recovery memoirs that take place at Hazelton. There's something about, there's some mystique about this Hazelton. If you don't know what it is, this is one of the the longest running, best known uh, rehab facilities. Um, if you watched or read A Million Little Pieces, which was kind of a sort of a fictional uh, fictionalization of, of somebody's experience uh, recovering, but a lot of it takes place uh, at Hazelton, I don't know. I, I just I love to hear stories about it. It's a very God based, twelve uh, step based, you know, very traditional. And uh, so he details his experiences there, mostly to illustrate kind of how backward he felt it was. He, he calls it the Hazelton brainwash. Yeah, and uh, there was one quote I heard this morning when I was re-listening to it that I, I it just really sums it up. He he's writing about his conversations in his group sessions there. And at the beginning, they're just trying to like break his will, get him to go along with their program. But he's very smart. And he, you know, his retorts um, are just a very telling of the way they uh, respond to it. One of them was they're telling him on the one hand, you have a disease, right? And, you know, you need to, to treat it. It's not your fault. It's a disease. But um, what you need to do is give your life and your will over to God. Right. And his response was, wait, so you're telling me that I have a chronic deadly disease and your prescription is prayer? Is that <laughs> right. what you're telling me? And of course, then they just say, well, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're in being, denial. You're in denial. You're being willful. But actually, no, he's making a great point. Um, I, be- I believe, personally, me, Nat, believe in God and believe in prayer, but uh, I'm also a believer in uh, a believer in that uh, if you ask God to move a mountain, you'd better bring a shovel, mm, mm-hmm. um, which I say that a lot. But, um, you know, you can't prescribe prayer if you're talking about a medical condition. I mean, a lot unless of, you're a Christian a, scientist. A lot of cancer patients will pray, but they also will get chemotherapy yeah, and, and radiation great. treatment. That's great. Right? Please pray. Pray, meditate. But... It shouldn't be the frontline no. uh, treatment for substance and, abuse. And, you know, so he makes, he just really, he makes them look dumb, basically. Of course, it's just from his perspective. It's probably not exactly like that. But um, I've been to a few rehabs that were just like that. And I can tell you, it's just like that, you know. Yeah. And um, I mean, I'd like to think that's, that it's changing somewhat now that science is catching up and people are able to do more research and, and find alternatives. Um, well, this author we have coming up on the 10th, um, oh, yeah. Evan Haynes runs a, a, a rehab center that's very well known called Oro Recovery. Right. And their whole shtick, and he writes about this in his book, Can America Recover, is kind of the opposite of this closed-minded, 
you know, strictly God and abstinence-based programs that have are just so pervasive in yeah. the rehab industry. So this would be a great topic to bring up with Evan mm. uh, on what is what are they doing at Oro that is, you know, we should do a side-by-side uh, Oro <laughs> recovery and Hazleton and just like how they're down. I should write that down. That's good. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm excited to talk to Evan. Um, you know, that, that's going to be an interesting discussion. Um, so, um, oh, before I forget, right. um, we, uh, Posis passed away a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. There's a GoFundMe for yes. his family. Uh, I donated and I, I suggest or recommend if any of you guys feel like helping out his family, his beautiful wife and two, uh, two daughters yeah. or son and a daughter, I'm not sure which, um, I'll put the link in the show notes and, you know, throw them a couple of bucks and maybe help defray some of the uh the hardships that they're going through i know people were very generous with for me when my wife passed away and uh so i, I try and pay it pay it back uh when i can so, absolutely um, um you have a lot of great uh bullet points on here uh we were just talking about suboxone you look like you're about to uh, pass out we're, mike's we're, not feeling so good and i just keep the going. show must go the on show must go on you right here under federal law suboxone uh, is a Schedule Three controlled substance with high abuse potential. Did I write that? Uh, somebody did. I, I think mean, you did. I don't remember. But, that. I mean, I agree. Yes, <laughs> uh, but it can't be abused. Uh, I tried. Oh, maybe there's something David said. You know what? I threw a lot of David quotes on there. Yes, yeah, Suboxone has a ceiling. It contains naloxone, which blocks opioids entirely. That just drives home the point I was telling you before, that even though Suboxone was the very thing I needed most at that time of need i was treated like i was demanding like i was drug seeking when i just i was actually treatment seeking Mm -hmm. and so federal laws uh he also says uh, the federal government limits the number of doctors who can prescribe suboxone that was another thing that uh, comes up in the book how sparse the doctors who can provide this is and i can speak to that uh, from personal experience and it limits the number of patients they can treat because of these restrictions there is a black market for the drug we need to eliminate the barriers to access and addicts learn firsthand that it won't get you high. Yeah, the doctor seeking, the, the looking for these doctors. Uh, when I needed Suboxone and I was no longer in a program, uh, you know, one of these, because um, uh, these outpatient programs, um, they lock you in to like, if you, you can only see their mm-hmm. Suboxone doctor if you're in their program. Um, and I had to search far and wide for a Suboxone provider. Now, it was available on the black market, and when I was still using, I would buy Suboxone on the street just to get through my withdrawal periods. But uh, I just remember driving all over Long Island to find these doctors, and it was all Mm -hmm. cash-based. In order to... Same thing with the poser. It was like a $400 cash, basically, uh, price just to get the, the first appointment where you could be prescribed it. And, and they really just treat you not like a patient, not like uh, someone in need of medical attention, but they treat you like a criminal doing something wrong. Yeah. It's fucking I mean, it's, it's interesting that the, the unique challenges that seem to be posed to people with the co-diagnosis of mental illness with uh, opioid addiction. But what about like, what about our average listener who may just be, you know, a problem drinker or even, oh, yeah. a, a, sorry guys, <laughs> even, you know, even a terrible, you know, bad drinker, you know, who may have started drinking as, uh, as what I believe most people do as a maladaptive coping mechanism for trauma or mental illness. You know, you, you have anxiety, 
you have depression, you right. drink to self-medicate. Yes. And then at some point you realize, okay, I need to stop drinking. I need to stop self-medicating. And that goes away. You know, the booze goes away and you're sober. And then all of a sudden your, uh, your anxiety and your depression return. And maybe right. you even forgot that that's the reason you started drinking it creeps in the first up place, on you. but then now you're left with it. I mean, I can tell you my own experience, you know, when I was in my early twenties and um, it was what fifty years ago. It was something like that, you know. I, <laughs> I believe the, there was a, I was the Etzel was a popular <laughs> car. Um, I was, uh, you know, I had this winter of anxiety, and I had, you know, this was a lot of stuff came together all at once. It was like after I had stopped smoking crack, I had a couple of maybe a year of sobriety, and then I went back out, and um, all of a sudden I was convinced that I had a terrible heart condition and that I was about to drop dead. And I started going to doctors and getting scans and having all this stuff done. And then uh, a doctor finally said, you know, what's going on with you? It's generalized anxiety disorder. I was having panic attacks. I was going to the hospital. And I didn't put two and two together. The fact that I had recently started drinking again, you know, after, um, a year of sobriety. And then, you know, with all that PTSD I had from all the crack smoking in the body, like it all hit all at once. And my answer to that was not to quit drinking. It was to double down on the drink. (laughs) Yeah. Clearly I don't have enough in me, you know, but, um, you know, the anxiety sort of worked itself out, but it was always there. Um, you know, I've also been prone to, you know, a sort of a mild clinical depression, you know, you, you know how it is when you like, nothing is interesting for months at a right. time. You just don't feel like getting out of bed. You don't want to do anything. There's a word for that. What was it? Clinical depression? No. <laughs> the word where you like lose, um, Oh, uh, it's not, not anime. It's the other one. Not sinister. Anhedonia. Anhedonia. Yes. So, um, so, you know, when I, uh, quit this time, I, I didn't, I didn't have a pink cloud. I was just sort of left with all the shit in my head, right? Yeah. So maybe something to do when you quit drinking and you still have the depression and the anxiety is to go see a therapist or something. Yeah. If you need medication, you should get on it. It's noteworthy though that um, 49% of the people in the United States are supposedly not receptive to um, SSRIs, mm. uh, so depression medication. So you're going to have to find another avenue, right? you know, Um very hard to treat depression like yeah. because you know you can be sober and you can be working on yourself and you can still have you know horrible depression um, um he's got a i think this is a quote from uh from the book here that i think was apropos uh by 19 i'd been through every conventional addiction care model rehab detox halfway house aana At every turn, treatment experts considered depression an excuse and insisted addiction was the problem. It was a disease, they said, and remission can only be achieved by eschewing science and medicine for God and prayer. It didn't make sense. Depression is degenerative biological condition. If my illness wasn't mental and a doctor prescribed opioids... Would anyone expect the pain to stop if the cause was ignored? Sobriety had the healing power of a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Let me say that again. Sobriety had the healing power of a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Uh, Over the next two decades, I relapsed repeatedly and led everyone in my life to believe I was sober and happy, even after I found buprenorphine and got back into therapy at 32. 
Uh, and that is just, it says so much right there. Mm-hmm. He's such a brilliant writer. I guess the, the takeaway for our monsters is don't just let it sit. You know, you, you're, you get sober and then all of a sudden you still have the depression. You still have the anxiety. Don't expect that it's magically going to disappear. No. Now you've got a base to work from. Yeah. You're not drinking. Your mind is clear. Now is the time to go out and engage whatever mental health professionals you think can help you get more into your spiritual side. If that's your, your jam, get into the meditation, get into the, you know, or maybe you do, maybe you do need medication and maybe medication is something that will work for you. The only way to explore that is to go see some mental health professionals and try and work it out. Um, but I, I would advise, I no. I don't like legally. I don't yeah. like the word advise. <laughs> I would, I would suggest yeah. that it's just um, a suggestion. Just That's what right. AA is. It's all suggestions, yeah. right? I, I would suggest that you not just let the depression and the anxiety sit with you and hope that they will work themselves out because many times they do not, and you don't want to find yourself in a position where you're like, like uh, David did, where you're measuring uh, the distance between your forearm and um, your uh, your fingers, so you can see if you can fit a shotgun in your mouth. Ugh. Um, we you also have here six strategies to use to uh, promote your well being. But those were from him yeah. in an article that he wrote. Before I read that, uh, I want to read this last quote from the book um, because it's also about the stigma of mental illness. So if you have these co-occurring um, issues. Um, you know, you're dealing with stigma on both ends. He writes, the stigma against mental illness may be stronger than the stigma against addiction. We know physical pain can't be willed away, but we think psychological pain can. Mental illness is often invisible, whereas physical illness isn't. We hide because we're ashamed, and we're ashamed because of the stigma. So while I'm not blaming any of us, so uh, it's hard not to wonder if the stigma would be easier to defeat if we talked about these things more openly. Wow, what a great quote. I'm glad I dropped that in. It's, thank you so much for that. Um, and it says it all, folks. And Do you think the stigma, because uh, I actually no. wrote that first sentence, oh. and then I dropped it in, with, I dropped the quote after it. Do you think the stigma against mental illness is a bigger thing than the stigma for addiction? That, I wonder. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you my experience uh, with uh, with mental illness diagnoses and the way I felt. Now, when I first got into recovery the first time, it was also the first time I had a doctor diagnose me as bipolar, having bipolar depression. Mm-hmm. And the first time I heard that, it shocked me right to the soul. Like it just—I remember I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like. I am bipolar. Like, mm. is that, is it true? Could this be possible? Turns out it, I'm not, but uh, it, it was induced by, uh, by drugs. Like I was, right. I had the symptoms of someone with bipolar and I ended up on medication for it. But yeah, I was ashamed, embarrassed um, to, to just know it was, you know, and that was all in my head. But um, I think it's because there is this stigma of like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a scarlet letter, like, you know, that guy's crazy. And uh, a lot of times, I, crazy to me is, is a positive thing. I love crazy people, but not like, I don't know. Well, there's crazy and there's crazy. Right. You know, so <laughs> I think there is. I don't know if it's bigger than addiction, um, but certainly. I mean, it's not a contest, two, but. No, you know. but certainly together, 
It's a double if whammy. You, if you have both, yeah. And in AA, when I was going to AA, where I was sent basically by anyone and everyone that I you know, encountered looking for help, a lot of uh, the, the group conscious in, in those groups that I went to was against uh, medication for depression. Mm. So they even made me feel bad about not only Suboxone that I had to like lie about or felt like I had to, and on top of it, to be on Prozac, to be on Depakote, to like stabilize what, you know, I, I felt that same thing. So um, well, it's, it's really hard out there. If I, were, if I were a listener, I would not take medical advice from a bunch of guys smoking cigarettes outside of an NA meeting. Yeah, but it's so hard when everybody's pointing, listen to those guys. Yeah, well then stay, stay away the from experts. NA meetings. No. <laughs> that would be my advice. Hopefully we are, you know, helping to break that stigma and um, and bringing everyone into the loving, warm embrace of the RMA. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Well, what did he call it? He said it was like a warm blanket on your yeah. opioid receptors. It, it really you know. is. I remember the first time I got the Suboxone. I had been three or four days since my last uh, dose of, uh, of opioids. And it was this feeling like your skin was was like painful. It was like pain. your skin's painful. You feel terrible. And then when you first put it under your tongue to, because it's, it's mm-hmm. like sublingual, you feel just like he says, a warm blanket. And it's just, you know, it's not high. It's you feel, ah, oh, I feel better. And then you're in a state where you can attack your recovery, where you can go for it and you can work on it. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what I did. And, um, and uh, you know, I hope more people hear this and consider it at least, you know, if you meet somebody in your AA group or wherever you are and, and they tell you, you know, be a safe place for other people who are going through this. Be a safe person that, that is accepting, understanding, and supportive. And I just I ask that you do that to your fellow recovering Alcoholics and addicts. Um, what are your six strategies to use to promote your own well-being and mental illness? No, promote your mental wellness, not your <laughs> mental illness. Let's promote our mental illness. Um, That's why we do this podcast. We're basically promoting our mental illness. Uh, fa- well, number one, family time. Well, okay, so these come from Poses uh, in an article I read where he was interviewed. Gotcha. Someone asked him, what are your six strategies to use to promote your own well-being and mental wellness. And can you please give a story or example for each? He did not give a story or example for each. But uh, one of them says family time every day is a must. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Yes. I mean, that's part of been my recovery. I want to be around my family all the time, and it's starting to be a problem. I'm starting to feel like I'm codependent. But <laughs> Don't like that word. Don't like that word. Oh, that's right. We don't believe in it, right? Um, so absolutely. Uh, what's number two? Well, he writes music because in this book, yes. music is like everything to David uh, in yes. this book, but it is good. Uh, I need to listen to loud music and play the various instruments I own, but I can't play very well. But yeah, music. And number three, he says, writing. Writing has been like breathing for me, so I need to make sure I write every day, although lately I'm revising more than writing. My memoir will be published in late spring, so I guess this was a little... Yeah. They tell us to do journaling in recovery. That's a big part of uh, many programs. It's suggested a lot. Think of medication like glasses. You said this uh, earlier. Number five, therapy. Every Tuesday morning. Six is honest communication. Don't suppress feelings. Agreed. Yep. Uh, addiction is improperly characterized as a moral defect. This is more notes. Um, yeah, more notes. So, 
I don't know. I think we get the the gist of yeah. of the book. The book is a good book. You should read the book. We we gotta <laughs> let Mike go, guys. <laughs> am I babbling? No, you could. You just look like you you needed to end. Listen, I and it's not over yet. We still have recovery in the know, news. I, we can. Oh shit! What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's had it, folks. No, no, I'm fine. I'm yeah. fine. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mike says honesty is vital. Mike says honesty said? is vital. Mike says he also says honesty is next to godliness. Or he also something. says secrets are deadly. Secrets are deadly. Um, You're only sick as your secrets. All right. So anyway, guys, uh, pick, <laughs> t- up, pick up. Uh, yeah, we're gonna move on. I think. Yeah. You want it? Okay. Um, I highly recommend um, this book, The Weight of Air. It's a great audible uh, listen uh, if you're, you're into that kind of thing. Also, you get you know get the book, uh, read it. I will say you you can read this one because it, it took me like two days. Oh, did you actually read it? I read it. Wow. Yeah, I didn't listen to it. Um, yeah, it was it was a good book. I, I'm just I'm terribly terribly sad that he's dead. Yeah, because it's rough. He helped an awful lot of people. He really did, yeah. and um, you know, another one, uh, another one gone. But uh, the way we can honor his uh, his memory and the work that he did is to do things like this: talk about his book, talk about his work, talk about mental illness and the stigma with addiction and mental illness, and just be there for your fellow addict. And um, and that's all we can really do. And with that, with that, we are going to and also send us your. Uh, Send us your thoughts on this, Send please. Send us your own experiences with mental illness and drug, yeah. drug abuse. Mike is only laughing because he doesn't know what else to do. <laughs> no, seriously, drop me an email. I like getting Mike emails from, from my listeners and friends. Okay. <laughs> and now it's time for Recovery in the News. Yeah! All right. Recovery in the News. Recovery in the News. Went down there. Recovery in the news. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, See, I went, came down the octave. I didn't even try to hit the falsetto note there. I just down have they changed the um, prescription for? I mean, the ingredients in Sudafed. Because there was a while there where you couldn't get it off the shelf. You had to ask the the pharmacist for because people were making meth out of it. If you didn't get it from behind the counter, it doesn't have pseudoephedrine in it. They it have, does have some kind of ephedrine because I saw it on the ingredient level. But if label, they have two different versions. If you okay. like, if you didn't give your driver's license to get it, you didn't get the high test. I didn't actually buy it, but no. I was thinking about it. You have to, you have to go behind the uh, counter and yeah. yeah. So they make two different versions of it: Sudafed D, I think, and um, is that what, no? You, I I I'm a, I actually I, I'm kind of joking. I didn't really take a lot of drugs today. I took. Um, I was going to say, what are you on? I took a couple of Advils because I have really bad sinus headache. A and Delta then, Eight THC. <laughs> I was thinking about that the <laughs> other day, and then I took um, just some na- some nasal spray with some janky antihistamine. Yeah. It, so, Ugh, I'm so sorry. I'm not feeling good. It's all right. It'll be. I'll be better. Recovery in the news. Yeah. So. Um, Two articles from the same paper this this week on medical marijuana in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, apparently, um, big marijuana is becoming a thing. Big marijuana. Yeah, it's just like big alcohol in terms of the way they are marketing their products mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. Yeah, um, something to be wary of. Pennsylvania has a rather robust medical marijuana 
uh, program. They, I don't believe they have legalized cannabis uh, for recreational use yet. Um, but it is uh, a big deal in Pennsylvania. Um, apparently, some Pennsylvania cannabis companies are using incomplete or misleading claims to promote marijuana as a treatment for opioid addiction. Hmm. potentially putting patients' lives at greater risk. Hmm. Um, I guess there are 60 different cannabis dispensaries offering services in Pennsylvania, and there are many of those. uh, Medical research was cited by a website or company official, um, which is contradictory to what the actual studies say, and... um, propose using medical marijuana as a substitute for suboxone interesting um yeah they made it legal it looks like i'm just looking at this article um just to give some context uh in 2016 governor tom wolf signed the law that made medical marijuana legal in pennsylvania the law went into effect in 2018 since then marijuana dispensaries have popped up across the state like weeds not that kind of weed. Um, that means that despite its plucky grassroots image, medical marijuana is a full-on industry that has That'd to be, be viewed <laughs> with all the critical thinking one would bring to any other moneymaker. Um, right. So the two most alarming examples um, were online statements that were made by two companies that help patients become certified to buy medical marijuana at state dispensaries. And if the experience in Pennsylvania is anything like the one that I recall in California, uh, you could basically just walk uh, up to some guy on the street in Venice. I was out there for a business meeting and there was a guy in a white coat with a clipboard who said, do you want to get your marijuana card? Just come in here and it'll be $300 and you know, you'll have it in five minutes. Did you get it? I didn't because I'm not a California resident. So I don't even think I was eligible for it. I would have probably. But anyway, without citing specific evidence, web pages for relief specialists spelled R E L E A F. I might add (laughs) that's good marketing and compassionate certification centers used identical language to claim that research suggests that medical marijuana can be a viable substitute for buprenorphine. One of three drugs approved by the federal government to treat opioid use disorders. Uh, Several health policy episodes, experts, cannabis researchers, and medical providers told Spotlight PA the claim was inaccurate, misleading, or possibly dangerous. Yeah, it can't replace... It doesn't make any sense. Marijuana doesn't attach to your opioid receptor. <clears throat> How could it possibly... I mean, it could relieve stress, anxiety, and help you sleep, but it can't possibly make you not feel dope sick. Well, I would think promoting cannabis is incredibly dangerous because uh, if, if, if you're keeping people from going and getting the buprenorphine because it's much easier to get certified to get weed yeah. at a dispensary and then you find was you're you know doing a couple of bong rips that hey this shit's not yeah. doing anything for me you know it's like high sobriety uh the joe shrank's uh, weed-based recovery um i think they they need both you know for different people you know different strokes for different folks depending on what drug you're recovering from you know you should have the panoply of- i mean i'm not trying to come down on weed uh, you know i just think that yeah, you have weed in your garage. I mean, we, we had... Right, right. I'm not coming down on weed. But I will say that <clears throat> these states that passed these medical marijuana laws had a, a long time to get this right. <coughs> to put in a robust regulatory framework mm. that would control these companies to the point where they can't just advertise medical marijuana as some kind of snake oil <laughs> that cures everything from, you know... 
you know, poor appetite to, um, <laughs> to like heroin addiction. I'm laughing because Nat is putting on his double layer mask as I'm hacking away in my corner here. If this, if you get me sick, I'm going to get sick. I, I warned you, and you said I'm coming. I have vaccinations. I know. I'm, I'm um, so uh, Keith Humphreys, an addiction researcher and professor at Stanford University, said that medical cannabis companies should be held to a higher standard than a non-medical business. Almost everything in here is, if it's not a lie, it's pushing the border of truth. Humphreys said after mm. reviewing. The findings and examples. So, I think what that means is if you are going to, as a state, certify a medical marijuana program, you sure as shit better get your regulatory house in order before the companies start pumping out advertising that can claim that they can uh, cure your heroin addiction yeah, by smoking, uh, you know, some kind bud. Uh, yeah, that is dangerous. And the uh, concluding paragraph says if Pennsylvania is really destined to be the next place where marijuana is completely legal, it is up to the state to figure out how to do it safely and reasonably, and how to keep big weed from following in big pharma's footsteps. Right. And um, do you want to read the other article, or you want no, to move on? And that was Recovery in the News. <laughs> and that was Recovery in the News. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Fuck me. More editing for Mike to do. I'm not editing that. <laughs> and make sure we have the correct sound thingy ready to go. <laughs> I'm ready. Weekend weird. Uh, People like our folk, folksy homespun way, don't they? Of doing the show. Is folksy the same way to... Uh, another way of saying that we are completely unprepared and... Um, <laughs> and I fuck up quite a bit. <laughs> so... Um, the Week and Weird is Sacred Mermaid to be analyzed by Japanese scientists. Oh, I love Sacred Mermaids. By, by who? Dimbanal. A centuries-old sacred mermaid mummy is set to be scientifically analyzed by researchers in Japan in an attempt to determine the true nature of the mysterious creature. Mm. According to a local media report, the rather nightmarish oddity is said to have been captured by fishermen sometime around 1738 and subsequently passed through the hands of various owners until ultimately winding up at a Buddhist temple in the city of Asakuchi at some point in the last century. Uh-huh. The curious creature, which resembles the half-human, half-fish construction of a classic mermaid, was showcased at the site for decades until being put into storage to protect the puzzling specimen. Seemingly forgotten since then. How can you forget about a mermaid mummy? In any case, seemingly forgotten since then. The purported mummified mermaid was rediscovered by Hiroshi Kinoshita of the Okayama Folklore Society where, well, while studying the works of famed Japanese natural historian Kayoaki Sato, <laughs> who wrote about mysterious creatures. After tracking down the location of the ancient relic, the researcher brought it to the attention of scientists from the country's Kurashiki University. and <laughs> You're speaking a lot of Japanese tonight. <laughs> uh, and suggested that they examine this peculiar specimen. Remarkably, the temple was open to such an analysis of their treasured piece and turned the approximately one-foot-long creature's One remains. foot long? <laughs> what, what kind the of fuck? mermaid is this? Uh, one-foot-long creature's remains to a team of specialists from the university. The group plans to conduct an array of tests on the alleged mermaid, including 
a morphological analysis, DNA testing, and CT scanning. It's not going to be a mermaid. Other team members will attempt to determine the process by which the creature it's was... a foot long. It's mummified. Um, and uh, who thrust the oddity into the so spotlight what was it, in the first place. Uh, one and a half feet long when it was not mummified? The researchers, the researchers say that they'll unveil the complete findings later this year and we will tell the monsters what happens. We're following the story very closely. <laughs> Those hoping to see that the study might determine to find if the creature really was a proverbial mer-being. <laughs> That's what? Mer hyphen being. Uh, they want to see if it's a mer being. And uh, they mish, may wish to... Isn't that basically a fish? A, a fish with boobs, I guess. Um, it may wish to temper their expectations. Blah, blah, blah. We've got a mermaid mummy. And that. You know, you didn't read the most important what sentence. What was the thing? <clears throat> I always forget the most important as examinations of similar relics has always found that they are simply two prosaic animals, such as a monkey and a salmon, artfully sewn together. That's no way. This is definitely a mer-being. You didn't want to read that part because you think it's a mermaid. <laughs> Selective. It's a foot-long mermaid. <laughs> 12-inch long mermaid. And thank you, Tim Banal. That was and weird. Well, that about does it for today. Does it I ever. know I had a great time. Did you? It was fucking awesome. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com. Wait, let me just say. Yeah. It really is good to talk to you all again. Yeah. To speak with you all. Not talk to you, even though technically we are talking to them. Or we're really speaking with them. It is an open dialectic to the Monkster community. Because when we miss a week, you know, it, it's, it's like missing a meeting. Yeah. You know? That's how I feel about it. Yeah. So anyway, go on. Okay, so get us on Middle Ages Recovery, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, and all of that fun stuff. Tweet us at twat, you twit. Support your favorite show. That's us. Drop a five-star review. Please, we need more reviews to read. Um, we love doing that. It makes me feel better. Give us a review, please. It makes Nat feel better. It really does. It gives me a dopamine hit. Do it on Spotify. It's a healthy way for me to get a dopamine spike. Um, speaking of, I haven't even checked Spotify. I don't know if we have a review. Me either. I don't even know how no to check. Amongsters, um, if you're out there, can you let me know if we have a review on Spotify? <laughs> we love uh, meet us. Uh, oh, yeah. Buy a t-shirt or simply write and say hello. We love meeting new monsters and chopping it up in the Facebook group. Join. Guys, join the Inner Sanctum at patreon.com slash recovery in the Middle Ages. Yeah, um, that's where you get you get a higher level of recovery support. It's a great group of monsters. We support each other's recovery. We also do video episodes that you can get exclusively on there, like Mishka Shubali's interviews on there. We did a few others. We're doing more. Uh, so join us over there. And finally, the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend, just like Rhina's doing. Uh, and rehab. Can we call him Ryan? I like Rhina. It's cool. It's like his, he's like Madonna. It's just Rhina. Uh, if you get something out of our show, please share it to help grow the RMA movement. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. That's a progress, not perfection. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, be good. Be good. Yeah. Exactly. Goodbye. <laughs>